Welcome to the New Zealand International Film Festival podcast series. Today's Q&A follows the New Zealand premiere of Capital in the 21st Century. Director Justin Pemberton and producer Matthew Metcalf are in conversation with Toby Manhire. Tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā tātou katoa. Great turnout. Thank you all for coming down here to see uh, these two gentlemen, uh, Justin Pemberton and Matthew Metcalf. Give them a big round of applause for... I'm sure you agree. Um, I think what we'll do this afternoon is uh, I will begin by asking a sprinkling of questions, but I won't ask too many, and then we'll throw it out to uh, you lot who have just seen the film. Um, the book, as you know, on which the film is based is 700 pages long and full of um, lots of theoretical uh Elements. Prefer if the questions weren't quite that level of <laughs> depth and length, and more kind of take a leaf out of the concision of the film. And if we could ask that they just end with a question mark, that usual thing. But the the place to start, I suppose, um, is the genesis, the why. It is that this massive. It's a doorstopper of a book. It's got a lot of graphs in it, a lot of theory. What kind of a person picks up that book? and thinks, I'm going to make a movie out of it. How did that happen? It's for you, Matthew. Um, honestly, um, I, I was reading the book, and I was sitting in bed, and one of the things that struck me about the book, and it's interesting, you know, because you heard it in Thomas Piketty's sort of opening statement. One of the things about Thomas is he says, I'm not an economist, I'm a social scientist. And when you read Capital in the 21st Century, the way that Thomas writes, he... he basically begins every chapter with sort of what I'll call a social anecdote. And most of those social anecdotes referenced pop culture, whether it was Balzac or Jane Austen. And, and, and I was, you know, reading the book, and it really struck me that the way that he was trying to tell us the way that capital has been reflected through the ages through pop culture. Whether that's pop culture from 300 years ago or pop culture from 20 years ago, he was trying to say to us that, that our relationship to capital is, is far closer to us than we realise. That the arts, if you will, has been showing this really forever. And that really struck me. And I remember thinking at that moment, wow, this, this, this book isn't a book about graphs. This is a story. And I'm a storyteller. And it was with that that, the, that I really sat down and wrote my part of, of this, which was sort of the initial kind of uh, almost brief, if you will, of, of, of how this um, doorstopper could become a film. And what happened from there? Did you uh, approach Piketty through his publisher or...? Look, I, um, I uh, used a, a really skillful and very, very clever system to find Piketty's email address. I Googled it. Um, took about 10 seconds uh, and I just wrote him an email and I said hi I'm Matthew Metcalf I um, think your book could make a great movie um, what say you and, um, and he wrote back to me and so began a sort of a three month conversation over email um, and then that conversation progressed to some phone conversations um, and then um, he, I think he had some understandable nervousness. He was not sure about, um, you know, whether he wanted his book to become a film. But the more he asked questions and the more I would explain to him what the ideas were and how I, I felt we should do it, the more he seemed to um, 
get on board with the idea. And eventually um, we did a deal and the rest is history, so to speak. And Justin Pimpton, at what point did you uh, fall in love with the 700 page and decide to dive into it? Um, well, I, I bought it when it came out in 2014, the English version, and um, which probably would have been the same time as you, but I didn't think about it as a film. <laughs> I just sort of thought, well, this is interesting, and what's so interesting is, is the time horizon thing, and is that something spanned this long, and that captured my imagination. Then I heard through some friends that Matthew was talking to Thomas, and that's when I needed to make this film. And we started talking about it, and Matthew said straight, straight away, just go and start writing something, but I was editing Chasing Great and still shooting it and had another project, an interactive documentary that I was also finishing, and so I didn't... I mean, I was getting up at five in the morning to, to write, and on my way home, and... Um, the Waiheke Ferry every day and just kept kept going in the background. It, it, it almost seemed, it was because it is such a huge book, it felt a little overwhelming and you said, just keep going, keep going, <laughs> keep, you know, it was so much to get through. Um, but I had the audio book, I had the digital book, I carried around the hardback, you know, <laughs> just to sort of have it near. Um, and I think I spent about four weeks writing it and then it got sent to Thomas. And thank God he liked it, because it was a lot of work. <laughs> the, the, the audio book you mentioned is, is 26 hours long, which kind of gives you a sense of what you're dealing with. You can listen to it on double speed, though, <laughs> which I was. <laughs> yeah. um, that sounds like you've got a lot in your life when you're listening to textbooks on double speed. The, um, the, the challenge, though, the obvious challenge, when you're going for a film of 100 minutes. I mean, I mean, I did wonder whether you thought about taking inspiration from Sir Peter Jackson and turning it into a trilogy rather than just the one movie. But it's a lot to pack in, so you have to make some huge decisions right off the bat, don't you, about how to d go about it? Yeah, there are still so many things that people said in those interviews that I love and that I still wish, you know, not, not wish they were in there because the film is the film and it, it really had to be about 100 minutes. I mean, I, I think we were pushing it going any longer. I think it was, there was a time when it was about 125 minutes and I still hadn't finished cutting and you told me that I had to come back straight away. So I, I was never going to be allowed to make a three hour film. So you were very strict, Matthew, on the 100 minute. Was that always the goal? I feel like bus push. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, look, one of the things I think um, we, we knew from the get go, and one thing I should say, by the way, is I don't think... Justin and I, I don't think, ever saw a different film. And one of the most wonderful parts of the process is right from the very first time Justin called me, and I remember it was like a Sunday afternoon, and Justin and I had never met. And, and he called me and we started talking about it, and right from the get-go, there's always been this shared vision for how to adapt this book. Um, and one of those shared visions was that it couldn't become like, like an essay. It couldn't become something that people switch off. It had to be entertaining. So when we talked about length, et cetera, it was never a, a, a kind of a, you will cut it down to this length. No, it's genius at this length. It was a sense of, we, we know the disciplines that filmmaking requires, and we knew the disciplines that you need to show the audience. And one of those disciplines is to keep it within a length that an audience feels comfortable with. Um, and at times that does require sort of pained decisions. Um, I, it's, 
I'm sure it's the same for you, Justin. I can't watch the film without remembering what was once in between two other scenes or something like that. But um, Every single one of those interviews was longer than the film. Oh, except Joseph Stiglitz. <laughs> so that goes to show, you know, like, it was un- they were all two to three hour long interviews. Um, some were l- longer than three hours, actually, like Kate and Suresh. Well, they say you have to kill your darlings, don't they? And that's part of the, the process, I guess. The, the film at the start has a almost kind of effect of a, like a kaleidoscope in some of the, the cuts. And then, and then I sort of feel like it's almost a bit more like a carousel. Like the whole thing is constantly moving in terms of the way you've put it together. Is, is that what you're aiming for, a sense yeah. of a... Uh, uh, the, really th- the thing that I kept thinking about was sort of hovering above history, looking down on it. And, and one of the really interesting things when, we were, when I was developing it was Donald Trump wasn't president. He was trying to become president. And, um, you know, Thomas talked a lot about, you know, this sort of um, how politicians will, will, will sort of point the finger at immigrants and at sort of, you know, some, at some sort of a, a scapegoat. And, and Donald Trump was sort of positioning himself as the outsider, you know. And as we know, he definitely wasn't because he got in and just did everything. And his power to, to sort of um, keep the status quo, really. But um, he, he, when we were um, making it, I, I was thinking about hovering above the world, looking down on it, basically. And, and, and because we were viewing this presidency playing out from the distance from New Zealand, I think that that was kind of a good perspective because I realised that we can see things in some ways, better from a distance than you can when you're right in the middle of it, you know? Um, so that became kind of a, a sort of a, an idea for the whole thing, to sort of hover and float above. And I always saw those characters um, who we interviewed as the narrators sort of looking back down on... And I mean, most of them were filmed, actually, up high. I think only Thomas is at ground level <laughs> with greenery behind him. There, there is, I mean, going back one step on that and on Thomas, Matthew, there is... There are a million different ways to make the film, but one of them would be to have uh, Piketty very much as the protagonist, you know, doing one of those sort of Simon Sharma numbers where you walk down the avenue and point out things and lead it in that way. Did you ever think about other approaches or was this always the kind of way that you envisaged the, the film needed to be made? Look, you know, um, every film that I've ever been involved in and everyone's process is different has always been about a moment where all the pieces come together in your head and you go, I, kn- I know how to do this. And I s- I've never imagined the film another way, you know. I, I was fascinated, you know, I rem- going back to what I said before, I was so fascinated when Thomas told me in his office, you know, Matthew, I am not an economist, I'm a social scientist. And I remember that being almost such an amazing moment because having this feeling of like, yeah, that, that's how it felt like reading the book, you know, like... It, for those of you who have read the book, it's a really, it's not like you imagine, you know, there's, there's a real narrative flow to it, there's a real story to it, and it's a story of human beings, history, towns, cities, societies, nations, it's really interesting stuff. And so I never read the book at those initial stages, I never thought to myself as, oh, it needs to be the way you're describing, which you could do it, it always felt like it needed to be about this human story, and as Justin, so eloquently has put it, a story through the ages that takes place over 400 years where we look down or use the benefit of distance to go, where have we come from? How did we get here? And what does it mean for the future? And you chose, Justin, to do it 
apart from the, the top of the film, which is interesting in itself, where you have the, the collapse of communism, it's pretty much a chronological sweep, which isn't quite the way the book is organised, right? No, but when I read the book, I was keeping myself a timeline because I always wanted to know, hang on, was this before or after that? You know, and for me, I just really thought that that's the way to see the shifting of capital through time. Um, yeah, so... I've got one more and then I'll throw it, throw it to um, <coughs> the audience. The, the line that appears at the end of the film is in participation with Thomas Piketty, and obviously he was there at the start, and obviously you conducted interviews with him. What does that mean? What, what in practical terms, was him, his involvement in the shaping of the film? Mm. Uh, I mean, did he have any sort of editorial control over it, anything like that? So me and Thomas chose the characters together. That was one of the big things. Um, I developed a narrative and sent it to him, and he fed back on that um, in terms of maybe a bit more of this and maybe a little bit less about Uber, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and, and, and so it was a bit like that. Then I went and filmed, did the first shoot, just a small shoot, and we cut together some sort of um, taster scenes of what it would look like, and that included, like, the Pride and Prejudice film with Kira mm. Knightley um, and some sort of, you know, pop culture music and stuff, and showed it to him, and he loved them. And th after that, he pretty much said, just go off and... And, and make it. Um, I'd love to hear some questions. Please throw your arms high in the air. And if I could just ask you to wait until Sally reaches you with the microphone before you begin. I can see one hand, a couple of hands towards the back here. Um, Sally is making her way there right now. Hello. Thanks. Congratulations to you both. It's a very gifted piece of work. I'm going to ask a, a technical question or a film question. How do you feel the subtitles work for the good or bad of the film? Is it a positive or a negative? I have my own opinion, but I'd be very interested in yours. Well, look, to be honest, it wasn't even a decision. Thomas was going to be in the film and he was always going to speak French, so we didn't have that kind of... I mean, he can speak English with quite a thick French accent, though, but... Um, but it is a French film, and all the French characters needed to speak French. That was a decision right up the top. Um, subtitles, it depends who you are. If you're dyslexic, they're a problem, <laughs> you know? Um, uh, yeah. I, I, my editor, by the way, was French. So she was a, um, a, a, a French, native French speaker. She's from Paris. Um, so I felt quite comfortable with the subtitles and, and also that we had a very... Um, thought along those lines. Or I, I think I know what you're saying, sir, because one of the things that Justin and I talked about right at the beginning, so this is when we were in pre-production, and I remember you and I had several conversations about the French and English aspect, and we, and we talked about the fact that we, we hope that the, f the use of the, f the French language, so therefore subtitles, would provide a, a kind of rhythm that we would come in and out of. We often talked about sort of a, a sense of bookends at times, you know, that we could come in and out, in and out, in and out of it. And I'm really intrigued, sir, that you've picked up on that because that is a truism. We talked about that, this sense of it, it providing almost breathing. Yeah. Thank you. Um, there's one here, Sally's found. Hi, uh, congratulations on the film, first of all. It was tremendous. And I am so impressed with the amount of restraint of... Uh, 
getting such a huge book and topic in 400 years and managing to get it into 100 minutes. It was like astounding. Um, my question is, with the interviews that you were just talking about uh, that have been left on the cutting room floor, is there any intention for them to be released in any way? Video on demand or a Blu-ray or something like yeah, that down the track? Yeah, there'll be Capital in the 21st Century, the final cut one day. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I don't know. I, I, well, no, but there are some amazing things that people say. <laughs> but I don't know. But I don't own it, so... Yeah, well, t TV, you could have an extended director's TV box set, bingeable, 20-hour version. <laughs> yeah, that's fine, isn't it, Matthew? You cr cr get on with that tomorrow. Yeah, cr anything's possible. <laughs> uh, where are we? Who's next? Hey. There's, um, there's one here. First yeah. of all, sorry. Um, Go ahead. Thank you. Really beautiful movie. Uh, my question was around um, the interviews that you did. How much of that was, you know, just sort of letting people speak what they wanted to, and how much it was about asking them some specific questions, obviously relating to the book and, you know, whatever the content of the book was? Like, did you have to prompt them to say certain things? Because at no point, you know, do we hear any questions that you ask them. Um, they are just interviews. I, I did... Um a lot of these people have written books. I, so I knew a lot about what they thought. Some of them I got to do pre-interviews with, just over the phone, um, but not the big, the big guns. You know, you didn't get to didn't get to even speak to Joseph until he walked into the room, and um, his interview was incredibly funny to watch at the end because he was on a very tight schedule, and at the end, um, he he looked at his clock and he went, "Right, that's it. Thank you. Bye." just gets up and walks straight out. It's crazy, <laughs> it's, uh, you know. But, um, but yeah, there, there's certainly there's, there's nothing scripted. There's nothing, I, I kind of knew what I wanted to ask certain people and I knew what their views were. And other than that, it's a lot of editing. You'll notice they're not on screen a lot of the time. So that gives you a lot of um, leeway to sort of really massage what they say into a really sharp and concise um, story. And I, I, my thing is, I actually, I chose these people because they were storytellers. And I, I mean, that's the thing I want to em emphasize the most. It wasn't just because they are, you know, the brightest minds. That they had to be able to tell a story. Um, and so people like Kate, the historian that's at the top of the film, I mean, I think she's just such a wonderful storyteller. She was always a must-have for me. Um, Thomas suggested Sharesh, which is the other guy that talks a lot about history. Um, and I phoned him up, had a great chat with him, and he was just able to just tell me such great things as well. And, and spoke in a way that I really liked because, you know, he's younger, he's in his early 30s, he says like a lot. <laughs> but I like that because he speaks in a very contemporary way and I didn't want it to be just voice of academia. Did many take persuading? I mean, like a, someone like a Francis Fukuyama, for example, did that take a lot much wrangling and persuading and cajoling? Was it none of the people that are in the film, no. I mean, Gillian even, Gillian Tett from the Financial Times, she even, she was moving things around to make sure she, she could do it. She really wanted to do it, which was amazing. Francis Fukuyama came back really quickly and he wanted to talk about this. I mean, he, he is a bit disturbed, I think, by what's been going on in American politics and thinks that America's lost its grip on democracy and it's completely been driven now by capital and the interests of fundraising. It's, I mean, he is one of the most interesting people to be in the film, I think, because you don't have the room to go on a big tangent about um, his role, but as the author of the, la the, the Last Man and the End of History, he 
had an idea, which touched on sort of, that, that, that it was all sorted. That, we, that liberal democracies were sorted and it was all going to be sweet, basically. <laughs> it's a very, 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 very brutal summary. And then something happened with Capital that, that changed all that. A absolutely. And I tell you, when Thomas saw the film, the first thing he said afterwards to me, well, one of the first things was how surprised he was by Francis, which right. I liked. I mean, he, he was very happy with, you know, the things that Francis was saying. But um, Thomas and his wife both remarked on that, like, wow, what a surprise. Yeah. Um, this one here, yeah. Um, thanks for that. Um, so my, my question is another film producing question, but um, I realise we've just got into content, so maybe you could answer the question and steer it back into content. But the question's about um, the film in terms of international partnerships and co-production and how that came about and what it was like. Um, look, so... Um, any, any good film producer will tell you that, um, that obviously before embarking on any journey, you have to ask yourself, how are you going to raise the money to pay for this enterprise? Um, and it was a really interesting journey, this one. Um, obviously, uh, we wanted to centre it out of New Zealand. I think New Zealand has a very long and very proud history of being on the forefront of social activism and, and social narratives, um, you know, throughout its history. And so it felt very right and proper to me that, that we started from here. And I think that I'm very confident, in fact, uh, that Thomas, I think, was quite influenced uh, by his decision to go uh, with us in granting the rights that we were from New Zealand. Um, in terms of the path from there, I went to the Berlin Film Festival, it was a few years ago now, and I started talking to sort of people that I knew, you know, trusted relationships, and it became really apparent really fast, as in within like an hour of, of talking to people, that this was going to be something that we weren't going to have a shortage of potential partners for. Um, what we started moving into pretty quickly was that it was the French, funnily enough, it's a French book, Thomas is French, who really, really wanted to be a part of the film. You know, they were putting up their hand, they were very keen, and I think the thing that meant a lot to myself and ultimately to, to Justin and myself was that they were prepared to say, we will back this, we will get behind it, but we will leave editorial control down in New Zealand. And that was a, a, a big uh, issue from our point of view. So in the end, we decided to work with a co-producer called Jan Leprado um, and a team at Upside, who you would have seen in the credits, um, in, based in Paris, and they were really good to their word. You know, they never once uh, did they seek to push uh, the editorial control out of New Zealand. They honoured that. They were true to their word on that. And it's one of those things that, with hindsight, I struggle to imagine doing the film without the French as partners. It, it, it would seem weird now, with hindsight, to do that. What about the New Zealand Film Commission? Was there any kind of expectation of... I mean, there, there's... Uh, you know, Bryce, Bryce Edwards is in there. Um, there's some more New Zealandness than there would be if the movie had been made out of, say, Finland. But were there any expectations of certain amounts of New Zealand participation from the Film Commission? Look, you know, one thing, I want to be really fair to the New Zealand Film Commission about this. I mean, firstly, when I first spoke to them, uh, there was enthusiasm right from the get-go. Um, and again, I come back to this idea that New Zealand has a long and proud history of being on the front foot of social issues 
you know, forever, whether it be, you know, the, the first, the, the vote for women, whether it be uh, the anti-nuclear stance, whether it be the environment, New Zealand has always been on the front foot. And it felt to me that the staff at the NZFC saw that right from the get-go, and it, I never felt challenged in that. Uh, the NZ uh, contribution was what I would call uh, commensurate with the fact that it wasn't a wholly New Zealand story, so they were by no means the largest investor um, or the greatest investor, but they were certainly a very important investor, and they've been wonderfully supportive ever since. Oh, this one here, and oh, back there. Thank uh, you. Kia ora, Justin. Um, it's me. Um, Ovi. Um, uh, Kapai you, Justin, and great to see Utu uh, being included in there. It was a really great example of uh, colonials um, doing what they do. Um, just wondered, um, has anyone accused you of political bias with the stance you've taken in the film? No. <laughs> really? No. I mean, you know, kind of to sort of pick up on the point that Toby was just making, these people that are in the film aren't all sitting in a particular political spectrum, you know. So you've got Francis Fukuyama, who was a neoconservative. Um, you've got uh, Simon um, Johnson, who's the former chief economist of the IMF, and, and Gillian Tett from the Financial Times. I mean, they're not traditional kind of left-wing people. And I mean, in, in this, what they're talking about is fact-based. So, I'm happy to do it if you like, just because you're going to get that question um, as you go travel with the film, so I'll just I'll give it a try. This is a piece of biased propaganda. <laughs> this, the, the liberal capitalism has brought untold wealth to the developing world. This is a piece of leftist, uh, libtard... What are some other words? Um, I was actually just propaganda. being provocative. I don't actually disagree with it. <laughs> I, I mean, look, I, the film is certainly not anti-capital. Um, one of the people we interviewed, Paul Mason, even said at the end of it, he has because he is quite a, a much more on the sort of left-wing uh, side he of the spectrum. He identifies as a socialist. Yeah. yeah, and he said that you know there are people that think that Thomas is just a centrist and is talking about just tinkering with capitalism and it needs to be done away with completely and this is potentially something that's going to perpetuate it. Um, I think Kim Hill touched on that the other day too, but yeah, so, so you know, it's not, it's certainly not a, yeah, uh, anti-capital film. But it has a thesis, doesn't it? I mean, there's no, yeah, no yeah, getting well, around well, that. Well, yeah, I mean, his idea is that capital has an instinct to concentrate and, you know, you know that. You buy a house and it goes up in, and, and, you know, it goes up in value and you think, oh, actually, we've got this equity, let's get another house and maybe we'll have that as a rental property. And maybe the tenants will pay that mortgage. That's great. Oh, gosh, that's gone up in value now too. We'll now get another one. You know, it's, it's, it's not like it's coming necessarily from an evil place. It's, it's kind of a... But it is a sort of a self-serving thing that is, you know, playing out. Um, well done, that was amazing. Uh, you talk about social activism, and I'm just wondering what the individual call to action is from the film. The individual call to action is to start talking about it and thinking about it in a way that's not just about the tax-free capital gains on your house, really, to sort of see the capital story in a much broader context, and then to actually 
Well, if we live in a functioning democracy to start working with, you know, but, but, but politics is very reactionary. It doesn't lead. That's why we can't solve climate change and as well as the capital problem. Um, so the big thing is to, one, get capital out of politics, two, demand that we fix the tax haven problem and vote for it, and then in the long term after that is, is to look into Thomas's ideas around inheritance and progressive taxes on capital. And, and you know you can actually have a pro uh, progressive tax on capital and offset it against things like tax-free wages. It's crazy to think that capital in America is actually called unearned income on a tax return to, to distinguish it from the actual labor that you're doing. And it is just income for ownership. So it's crazy that people feel that it doesn't need, that income shouldn't be taxed, but every day that you show up for work, you're quite happy to have tax deducted from you. you and we also have progressive taxes on our labor as well. So why wouldn't you have progressive tax on capital? I mean, we just haven't been thinking about it properly. And that's what Gillian Tett means at the beginning when she says that it's doesn't, that it, that it, um, it, it also controls the way we think. It must have been quite interesting the, the timing when you were reaching the, the end of the film, presumably, you know, pulling the all-nighters and cutting it together was about the time that the tax working group in New Zealand was in the news here. It must have been, was it interesting to watch the way that debate, what little of a debate there was, play out, given what was in your heads at the time? The conversation that worried me most was people saying I've already paid tax on my wages so why should I have to pay tax on it? Which was, showed a complete lack of understanding that this is actually new income. <laughs> it, it's, we talk about income, we're not talking about something that you've already paid tax on. This is something you don't have yet. This is new income. Um, and I thought that just goes to show a, a, that the debate had been a little bit hijacked. Um, yeah. Thanks. There's plenty more here. Thank you for the film. It really saves me reading the book. <laughs> <laughs> Which is one of the reasons I do come to film festivals. Um, but at the Writers' Festival uh, earlier this year, um, Kate Roweth um, gave a wonderful address on donut economics. And I just wondered if she had entered your um, understandings before you actually made the film, because it offered such a positive and uplifting way in which the world can operate? The short answer was no. <laughs> um, it wasn't one of the books. It wasn't something that we looked into before we made the film, so it didn't. Yeah. Thanks. Funnily enough, my question was quite similar to that. Um, firstly, thank you. Thank you for making a film that provided such a high degree of perspective and made it accessible. Um, but I am interested that there was no environmental economist in, in this. And, and I loved the, the snippet that you had around, around oil in the 70s and talking about raw materials and how that can disrupt. And I'm curious, as we go into the 21st century, we will have so many more raw material constraints and what that looks like. And that wasn't touched on, and I, I was curious. Um, climate change was certainly something we did discuss in the interviews and we had played with. Um, really, it's a 100-minute film, and there are other things that... The climate change is not a big feature in the Capital in the 21st Century book, so that became one of the 
sort of editorial things. But there's no doubt the reason we can't solve climate change is purely because of capital. It, there's just no doubt about it. So you have to solve the capital politics problem first before you can solve climate change. And the, the thing is, you know, An Inconvenient Truth came out in 2003 and we still haven't got anywhere. It's not because people don't believe in climate change. It's not because people don't want it and it's not because people don't, aren't scared about it. It's because of the lobby capital politics loop. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, kia ora, and Justin and Ma uh, Matthew. I, uh, Matthew, I, I just wanted to ask a film question. Um, to do with the sort of budget uh, uh, side of things, the soundscape to me was absolutely terrific. And um, I know it's an area that people sort of just don't think's happening and they just take it for given that it will be there. But you obviously put a huge amount of work into that to um, bring it to the, the level where everybody could um, emotionally react to what could be very dry things, I think. And so there's that. And then there's the animation and the use of um, pre-existing materials which often put beginning uh, people off um, doing their... Uh, investing in film because it's so such a big item and I'm just wondering Matthew if you can talk about the sort of relative um, you know listings of things in your head or the percentages of things that you devoted to creating what became a fantastic film look um, it was not lost on me on a single day the ironies of this film that so much of the pain that film this film was causing me was the pain of capital while we made a film about capital. <laughs> um, I, I, I could honestly, I could, I could spend hours talking about the, the contradictions that went into this, so much of the battles, so much of the, the pain, so much of the tears, and there were all of those, were debates and arguments and scraps over what is effectively capital. Um, in the end, um, we found our way through, um, and, but it was difficult. And if it wasn't for a very, very uh, talented team here in Auckland um, and a team in Paris, we would never have got through uh, those, those matters because, of course, <laughs> you know, everything in that film was paid for, you know. So here we are talking about unearned income, and all of those shows that we used have all been sort of paid for before, but they're all earning a passive income by being licensed to use in this film. So I'm, I'm really aware of the, the odd and ironic contradictions <laughs> of this film. But it's a very astute question, man, and thank you for asking it. The interviews as well. None of the characters that were interviewed got paid that told our story, but every single piece of real estate they sat in, we had to pay for. Yeah. <laughs> so... <laughs> Hello, it seems to me that um, currency is a great measure of capital. Um, banks you know, uh, print the money and they, they make the money of the country. And banks are very implicated in the way it was distributed and the bad effects it's had. I wonder if you might have any comments about cryptocurrency, which is just sort of arising in the world of uh, measuring capital. Well, Bitcoin clearly isn't a currency. It's just a speculative tool now because it's not been used to 
to pay for things on any kind of massive scale, and yet it's, it is an asset that has completely appreciated in an exponential way. So it's a, just a form of capital at the moment. But, you know, I <laughs> don't know what else to say about that. Thank you. Probably got time for a couple more. Yeah, fantastic film, guys. Um, really paints a great picture of the world that we live in today. Um, do you find that, or would, do you see that wealth inequality will decrease over time, or do you believe that private com companies and industries have become too powerful and too rich um, that the government cannot even tax because of the lobbying that you guys are talking about? And Yeah, I just want to hear your thoughts yeah. a little bit more on that topic. In France, they're already talking, and just in the last week, they're talking about changing the way that they tax the IT companies. And it is similar to what Gabrielle was talking about in the film in terms of you know, taxing where the money is made, not where the profits sit. So that's a really positive step. Um, sorry? Yeah, I think um, there's, there, there is also a lot of talk. I mean, a lot of the conversations are coming out of Europe. You know, there's been a lot of talk around taxing high-frequency trading and things like that. You know, there, there is, even in America, you know, there are talks at the moment about having public, publicly funded elections to get rid of the amount of private capital that needs to be sourced to be able to get someone elected. And, you know, Obama himself raised a billion dollars of private money to get in. So I don't think it's surprising that he didn't really do much to change that Wall Street system. Um, but the, 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 conversations, the conversations are happening, and I think the, the warning that Thomas is saying in this is you don't, we, know, we now know that we don't have to go to war and we don't have to have a huge financial collapse or something like that to renegotiate and, 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 and reorder our relationship with capital. I mean, that, that's the thing that's so great. We have the archive, we have the knowledge now, and we have the stories. So um, it's my, my positive thing is it's up to us. I'll, I'll, I, I, there's something that really strikes me in the film that really gets to the heart of this. You know, Thomas makes a point right at the end of the film where he talks about the fact, and this is really the central premise of his book, you know, that, that really what you call wage growth has historically been 1.6% per annum. Uh, whereas capital growth, owning a house, owning a factory, whatever, has been 5% per annum. But he makes the point in saying that isn't necessarily a problem. And this comes back to what I was saying when I introduced the film. The problem is when we're not all participating in the economy. This is what it's really about. Are we all participating in the economy? Because as he said, if we've all got shares in a pension scheme, if we all own an apartment, if we all have a little bit of a shares in the factory that we work in, then we're all benefiting from the rise in national wealth. It's when we become disconnected from that as a society that problems start to accrue. To, to my mind, if I can leave you as an audience with one message, it's that we all need to participate in national wealth. When we as New Zealanders all have skin in the New Zealand game, you know, when we're all gaining from New Zealand's gain, well then we all feel part of it and we're all beneficiaries of that. But when we have people in society who watch others benefiting, well they sit stagnant, that's bad for society. That leaves people out of the economy. That leaves people out of politics. It makes them disenfranchised from their world, and that, that's, that's bad. If there's, if there's one thing I can leave you with, it's that. Do we have a lucky last? 
Oh, hang on. Please wait. Please wait. Please wait. We'll get the mic to you so people can hear what you say. I have just reassessed the wages of our single agricultural employee based upon the increase in national salaries over the year. But now I think that is the wrong way to do it. Thank you to what you've just said. I really must look at what my capital gains have been during the year and say that is how I should have looked at his salary. Can, can I ask one last one, Justin? Just um, the, Gillian Tett says at one point that if things don't change, you're going to get a full-blown revolution, which in some sense, when you look at the sweep that you cover, is the sort of natural order of things in, in one sense. And I kind of wonder, now that you've been so immersed in all this material, not to make you gaze too deep into your crystal ball, but which way do you think this is going? I mean, because if it carries on, that is where, where, where it arrives, right? What, where, where do you think it's heading? Depends on the day, really. <laughs> because, you know, you don't, Donald Trump doesn't arrive as the President of the United States because people are happy. I mean, he's, he absolutely is there because people aren't and people want to blame someone and they, and they do feel like they're slipping backwards. So that's not a positive, but, um, but you know, <laughs> it's, it, it hasn't played out yet. So hopefully this film will help Put, you know, add to the debate and make people see things in a slightly different way and think differently about what's, what's happening in front of them. And if the film makes a huge amount of money... <laughs> I don't own it. It's not my wh capital. Which, which tax haven do you think you'll go for for <laughs> storing all the profits? Oh, probably Rarotonga. <laughs> we'll keep it local. <laughs> keep it local. Um, Look, thanks so much for uh, giving your time today uh, and everyone here as well for coming along. Uh, Piketty has said at one point that his ultimate objective is to contribute to a democratisation of economic knowledge and it seems to me that this film has pledged a hu huge part in doing that. Thank so. you. Thanks so Thank much. You.